Hello and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm James. And I'm Nick. And together we're inviting you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge. Just like you, we have questions about the world. Deceptively simple questions. So one series at a time, just as fast as our little brains will allow, we'll bring together the best and the brightest to talk about these simple questions. In this first series, we're talking about climate change. Climate change is likely to affect almost every area of our lives, like a toddler with sticky fingers. And in this second episode of the series, we'll explore what we are doing right now to tackle climate change. Basically, I th- I was a little worried that we were going to have to play some sort of uh, game of Chinese whispers between us all. Out of the six people on the call, uh, myself and Hugh Hunt couldn't hear each other. So we were just left sort of in limbo. Um, which meant that James took over uh, he did an awesome job taking over and doing the entire interview himself and I joined Naomi in the background feeding James some lines I completely forgot about this I blocked it out <laughs> I forgot that we that we lost you Nick I'm sorry about that oh, it was great when the, uh, the interview kicked in all I heard was Hughes talking about poo and it was just <laughs> I knew the interview and the discussion was going really well um so yeah, because of these unfortunate technical issues, you'll only hear me um, speaking as we go through the interview, although there, in spirit, was Nick the whole time as well. Just hidden in the background, just typing. Typing away. Typing. Type, type, type. Yeah. So who were we talking to in this episode? Well, we talked to a mathematician. Hello, I'm Emily Shukbra. An engineer. Hi, I'm Hugh Hunt. And a psychologist. Hello, I am Sander. We began by asking where you fit in the sort of mosaic or the tapestry of climate change research. So let's start with Sander this time. Yeah, I think, you know, I would characterize myself as somebody who studies the uh, psychology of, of climate change. So how people think, feel and act on the issue of climate change, how people make decisions about it and how we can best communicate um, the risk and evidence surrounding the issue of climate change. OK, Hugh, how about you? Well, I've been interested in how we could uh, actively modify the climate, this field of geoengineering, if you like. How how might we refreeze the Arctic if we fail to meet our CO2 emissions targets? So I'm a mathematician by background, and um, I've spent my career looking at different ways in which we can apply mathematics to better understand our climate and how it's changing. And most recently, I've been looking to apply the latest in machine learning techniques to explore new ways of um, analysing the vast amounts of data that we have from all sorts of different sources, from satellites, from on the ground sensors that are telling us about how our environment is changing. So we want to start now uh, with a little bit of scene setting. We kind of want to understand what's going on at the moment and what some of the big issues are and how we might respond to them. But Emily, um, over to you first. How healthy is the planet at the moment? So in terms of our climate, we are at about one degree of warming with respect to um, 150 years ago. Um, which is before we started putting large amounts of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. One degree Celsius doesn't sound very much, but when it translates through to the risk of extreme weather events, it's really quite significant. And we are seeing the impacts in terms of wildfires, in terms of flooding events, um, and in terms of dramatic changes like the rapid um, decrease in the amount of sea ice in the Arctic, for example. And 
if we continue on our current trajectory, then we will exceed 1.5 degrees of warming within the next couple of decades. Um, so our climate and our, and our changing climate is a, is a real um, major global threat, but it's also happening in the context of other environmental changes, not least the destruction of nature. And it's estimated that some 1 million species are at risk of extinction over the coming decades. So you might hear talk about tipping points. Are we, are we approaching any tipping points? And, and, and how do we know if so? So we know that as you increase um, the warming, then you increase the risk of what I sometimes call catastrophic shocks occurring. And these are major changes, many of which we know have happened in the past when the world has been, in some instances, not much warmer than it is today. So the sorts of things that we're concerned about in terms of that are, for example, the collapse of the vast ice sheets covering Greenland and West Antarctica which contain within that ice um, the equivalent of many metres of sea level rise. They, uh, uh, and other examples are the release of vast stores of frozen methane from the Arctic as the Arctic warms up. Methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And so would um, if that you did have that release, it would be a dramatic acceleration of climate change or the rapid dieback of the Amazon rainforest, switching from a rainforest into a savanna. Uh, as a rainforest, it soaks up large amounts of carbon dioxide, turns it into a savanna, it no longer acts as that sink of carbon dioxide, and again acts as an acceleration of climate change. So there's a whole set of different um, things that we know could occur that would be really dramatic if they did. And the risk of those occurring increases the greater the warming. Well, Emily's right to say that carbon dioxide is, uh, is rising rapidly uh, and that methane, gosh, it's the scary one around the corner, um, that may well really overtake carbon dioxide. So uh, they are tipping points, but we've got to be ready to get uh, carbon dioxide and methane out of the atmosphere, the greenhouse gas removal, as it's called. Uh, and so I, I guess, yes, we could be fearful of uh, these tipping points or else we could be doing something about it. But what about what about any social implications and, and what does social science bring to this picture of the state of the of the planet at the moment? Well, I think you can look at it from both the side, the social science side in terms of how do people understand the risk of climate change? How much do they know about it? How do they feel about it? And, and how much do they act on it? And we have accumulated some knowledge over the last decades in terms of where we stand on that. But then there's also the impact side. So how is climate change going to impact human psychology in terms of immigration, potential conflict, anxiety about climate change, effects on mental health in addition to physical health? So there's lots of questions on how people are going to be impacted and their ability to adapt and how resilient and, and vulnerable certain communities are going to be. So Hugh, um, you know, Sander was there talking about how people feel about climate change. How do you feel about climate change? Well, it's, it's very frustrating that um, we seem to, to, to think that we can carry on doing what we do in our everyday lives. Okay, the pandemic's been a bit of a, a, a nuisance, but you know, flying and, and driving and going on holidays and heating our homes and without actually realizing just what the, the uh, climate impact is of everything we do. So for instance, the, the typical UK carbon 
um, footprint is say 10 tons per person per year. Um, that means that in my lifestyle, every year I produce 10 tons of carbon dioxide waste. Now, in terms of, of other waste, like kitchen waste or even poo and wee, I don't produce anything like 10 tons of that kind of waste. I probably produce maybe 250 kilograms of poo a year. So why is it that it's I can... It's not a competition, Hugh. It's not a competition. <laughs> it's, it, it's not a competition, but why is it that I care a lot about getting the sewage system right when that's only 250 kilograms a year, but I don't really care much about my 10 tonnes of CO2. That's what worries me about the kind of the social uh, uh, perspective on this, that we, we, don't, we, don't get, we don't have a good handle on the numbers. We don't have a good handle on the scale of the problem. Sandra, do you think a better hand, handle on the numbers would would help here? Do you think it's because we don't have enough numbers that you know we respond as a society in the way we do to the threat of climate change? Yeah, so there's a lot of debate about that, and I think you know num- numbers are part of the story, but they're they're clearly not the whole story for people, and that's just because you know if you think about how humans learn, most of the time it's through experience, you know, through our senses, our touch, our smell. That's one of the most powerful ways that uh, that we can learn. You know, Mark Twain once said in an unfortunate manner, a man who carries a cat by the tail learns something he can learn in no other way. And I think, you know, that that's kind of speaks to the idea that numbers don't give people that, that kind of uh, experience. Another way to think about it is that, you know, if you go to, if you've never tasted peanut butter before, um, are you going to be able to understand what it tastes like just from the ingredient, from reading the ingredient list? And that's, you know, that's kind of the difficult part that we we can't really offer people a a taste of of climate change in order to get the right experience to then have the appropriate response to it. We can certainly try. And I think communication over the last 10 years has moved on from just trying to convey facts and numbers to trying to portray some of the impacts of climate change. You know, we can use virtual reality, for example, in our in our lab to simulate climate change for people. Um, so we can do lots of new things to try to understand how people might react to it. But um, it's also tricky from a scientific perspective. So Emily was just talking about, you know, the impacts on, on extreme weather um, and, you know, how to communicate that. A lot of climate scientists, though, will, will often not be so comfortable by, by saying, oh, you know, um, extreme weather is increasing directly as a, as a function of climate change. You know, maybe the evidence is more clear for heat waves than fires or, or rain. And, and that's where it gets really complicated because, you know, you want to give people the experience, but you also want to be accurate in the way you represent the evidence. And I think that's kind of where we try to find the balance. But Sandra, do you think if, um, if CO2 were a brown, smelly substance, then we would <laughs> we, we treat it differently? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, people have a very high uh, disgust sensitivity response. And so um, if, if climate change was a, uh, for, you know, and that makes sense from an evolutionary perspective. I mean, you, you know, your cat won't eat certain things because it's learned from previous experience that, that it's bad. Um, so if, you know, if, if climate change were a brown, smelly, sticky thing, people would stay away from it and would, would want to be motivated to protect themselves from it. And so the fact that it's invisible and statistical for the most part and an average trend poses a huge problem psychologically in terms of how to address that for people. Emily, what about you? What's your thought here on, you know, providing people with more information about climate change versus giving them a feel of what a sort of a future where we're living with the effects of climate change might look like? 
Yeah, so I, I mean, clearly it is important to be able to try to convey the scale of the risks associated with climate change. But I think that the, the aspect that, are, that, to my mind, that is most important is to separate out communicating the scale of the risks from um, communicating around what we could do about climate change. Because I think, you know, a, a lot of the time that, you know, actually what we're, what, what we're wanting to um, discuss with people is how we can respond to climate change. And that's a completely different story. And, and I think that one of the things since setting up Cambridge Zero, I have essentially gone from working a lot of my research focused on better characterizing the problem and switched over to working a lot on how we can develop the solutions and and and, and communicating and and the the excitement actually about how we can all get involved in helping to shape a better more sustainable resilient uh, world that is more in harmony with nature that helps to sustain us um, is a completely different narrative to one that's around the risks associated with climate change. I think that's interesting. I, I would say, though, that uh, maybe it depends on the audience. You know, if people don't see climate change as a risk, if they deny that it exists, they're not going to be motivated to do something about it. And so, you know, it only talking about solutions tends to, to work when people have an appropriate understanding of, of the risk and are motivated to, to address it. You know, unless we don't want to talk about climate change at all and sort of tie it into larger themes that people care about, such as the sustainability of the planet or, or um, well-being of communities and, and air pollution and things like that. Um, but I do agree that, you know, talking about solutions is, is very important because often what people, the actions that people think are effective, like recycling, aren't always the ones that are most effective. You know, most people don't necessarily realize that uh, cutting cutting down your meat consumption and flying less is, is what it, are two one of the most impactful behaviors that you can you can enact uh, whereas we see most most people think you know maybe recycling a bit more or driving a bit less is, is going to be the most effective action so there's this big gap sort of between what what you know what is most effective and, and what's our knowledge I mean I don't even I don't know every single detail of my carbon footprint and how to improve it. And we don't have a good feedback system for people to receive feedback on their carbon footprint. So I think that's a hugely interesting area. But isn't it, isn't it the case that um, even if you do uh, acknowledge, believe in climate change, the fact that you're benefiting so much from the agent that produces climate change, i.e. oil, coal and gas, means that you, you don't really want to believe it because... Oh, gee, if I if I if I believe in climate change, then I'm going to have to to stop doing all these things I love doing, and that's perhaps why people don't want to believe in it. Right, time for a quick catch up. Last time, if you remember, we talked about how we got to where we are now. Now we're talking about where we actually are right now, right this minute. Yeah, right this very second. So we got the environmental perspective from Emily. We're currently at one degree of warming compared to 150 years ago, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it does have a significant impact. If you think about wildfires, flooding and other forms of extreme weather, and we're now on track to exceed 1.5 degrees of warming in the next couple of decades, this would put around 1 million species at risk. 
Well, that sounds grim. Uh, thanks, Nick. It gets worse, I'm afraid. Emily told us we're also approaching a couple other environmental tipping points that sound pretty scary. For example, ice sheets collapsing, several metres of sea level rise, and the Amazon rainforest turning into another savanna. But Hugh didn't sound too glum, did he? I mean, he said that although it makes a lot of sense to be afraid about what could happen, we also need to do something now. Which I guess goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode about climate change being caught between wanting more information and needing to act on the information we already have. And that's exactly what Sander was saying. He was telling us that numbers aren't the whole picture. They often don't provide us with any sort of direct experience, which is what we humans really need in order to learn. Reminds me of Sarah Dry's comment from the last episode about knowledge never being enough on its own. Exactly. And he was pointing out that we don't even know the impact of what we are doing right now. Most people just don't have a handle on the scale of the problem or a good idea of what changes would have the biggest impact. And in case you missed it, just rewind to the bit where Hugh tells us that if only CO2 were more like poo, then people might take more notice. Yeah, super grateful for that image, Hugh. We really owe you one. <laughs> anyway, we then started talking about whether we should try to separate talking about the risk of climate change from the actions that people can take. I mean, the risks sound pretty big. Oh, absolutely. So we thought we'd better ask about what we can do about all of this. So I want to I want to move on and think about, you know, possible solutions, some of the things that we might be able to do. So those which perhaps Emily was talking about introducing to others. Um, Sand, I want to start with you here. Um, Pfizer's not the only one who's been working on a vaccine. You've mm. been working on a virtual vaccine against fake news and misinformation. So how is fake news um, affecting action around climate change? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a big debate in terms of how influential fake news is on our, not only our thoughts, but also our behaviors. Um, and that, it's, it's very difficult to characterize a direct causal link between fake news and what people do, because, you know, your everyday behavior is determined by lots of things. And what we want to find out is if I increase your intake of fake news, how much is that driving your behavior? And it's actually very difficult question because there's lots of mediums through which that signal travels that we need to um, think about. But by and large, to give you a simpler answer, um, there have been documented disinformation campaigns on climate change uh, for decades by vested interest groups who have specifically targeted people's um, sense of the science and they've been manufacturing doubt about the scientific consensus on climate change. And certainly that has affected the way that people um, think about science. And we know that if people are unsure about the science, they're less likely to act on it. And we've produced several models that, that exactly uh, you know, demonstrate that, that if you make people uncertain about the science, they're less likely to then be worried about it and take action on it. So those those type of disinformation campaigns can be quite effective. And Naomi Oreski is a, is a science historian at, at Harvard, has written a book called Merchants of Doubt, where she talks all about the sort of techniques that um, that are used by, by these actors, not just on climate change, but also uh, by the tobacco industry and in trying to obscure the link between smoking and lung cancer. And the idea of the vaccine really arose out of, out of this notion that can we take these techniques, administer a weakened dose of them preemptively to help people build up intellectual antibodies against them when, when they really, you know, uh, receive a full attack of the, uh, the disinformation virus, quote unquote. Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of what we've been, what we've been working on. And I should say a psychological vaccine is not the same as a biological vaccine in the sense that, you know, you don't have full immunity, but it seems to be some, 
somewhat beneficial to people that if you preemptively sort of train them on these um, on these techniques, they're more resilient against them. And so the impact of fake news is much less. Emily, what about you when you're communicating with others about, um, you know, either the the existence of climate change or some of the possible solutions? What are the sort of possible falsehoods or misinformation that you come across? <laughs> um, well, listen, you know, I've been um, communicating around the climate science for the last, I guess, almost three decades. And um, uh, there's been plenty of falsehoods around the climate science that have been very, very prevalent. I, I think actually increasingly less so. Um, but nevertheless, there are there are there are many. But in terms of the solutions, I don't I, I think I'm not sure it's falsehoods as such. But I think one of the most common questions that I get asked um, whenever I give public lectures is, what can we be doing about it? You know, I describe the scale of the challenge in terms of um, the scale and the urgency of responding to climate change. They often say that sounds a lot worse than we thought. Uh, and then they say, well, what can we be doing? And, and I think there's a real communications challenge there in terms of communicating to people what they can be doing, what they can be doing in their personal lives and, ha- and connecting that through a, a very common thing for people to, to quite rightly ask is, well, you know, I'm one individual on a planet of you know, 8 billion people. How can what I do make the slightest difference? And I think that feeds into, you know, some of the other questions that, that Sander is, is very much um, focused on in terms of, you know, that, that connection between individual behavior and then this global challenge. And how do you, how do you straddle that? Again, I think it comes back to having receptive audiences. You know, people tend to not want to talk about solutions if they're denying the problem. And I think the question is, you know, what's the scope of this? And I think the scope of this in the United States is a lot bigger than, let's say, in the United Kingdom um, and also in some pockets of of Australia, um, where, you know, there's quite a large denial movement. I mean, I don't really like to use the term denial, but, but, you know, people... Uh, essentially, you know, propagating the idea that climate change is a hoax and not wanting to support any kind of solutions. And then you have a very difficult conversation. I think misinformation plays a a crucial role in perpetuating and sustaining this sort of anti-climate solution um, sentiment. Um, Of course, you know, the, the Trump presidency played a huge role in that because as an elite actor, he was a major disseminator uh, of the idea that global warming uh, is a hoax. Um, and I think, you know, that's why you have to think about audiences. You know, some audiences are going to be much more receptive to a message about what the solutions are than audiences who are questioning the science and are, and are spreading conspiracy theories, for example. And so those tend to be the minority, though, which I think is good. But there's been some evidence that those groups are quite loud and influential and, and might be growing. Um, and so that, you know, I think we have to keep an eye um, on that whilst we talk to people about how to best implement um, solutions. But on the same side, the, the solutions are often undermined by people who are not receptive to them because it, you know, either uh, it goes against their political ideology or their worldview, uh, which could be um, religion also. So that plays a huge role in this. And so communicators actually have a really interesting and important role of, of identifying with their audiences because that's a way that you can speak to audiences when people trust and identify with you. So for example, um, and I'm sure Emily knows Catherine Hayhoe well, who's a climate scientist who speaks to religious audiences um, about the importance of climate change, who might otherwise not be you know, willing or receptive to listen to solutions. So I think that's kind of where the important nuance is.
Am, am I, can I just can I just add a little bit on that, which is that we were very fortunate to find a solution to the uh, the CFCs problem, the hole in the ozone layer being caused by these um, these chemical thing released from our refrigerators. And the idea that oh, we came up with a technical solution to that. And we as individuals didn't have to, to lift a finger because we just got, um, you know, the, refrigerator, the refrigerators were designed differently and everything's fine. Um, my sense is that in terms of coming up with a solution, there is this idea in the back of people's minds that, yeah, the scientists, the, the engineers, the technologists will come up with a solution and I won't have to lift a finger. Uh, and that is, is a bit of a worry. Um, you know, where do you think the responsibility lies? You know, is it shared? Is it an individual responsibility? Or are there some possible technical solutions out there which could at least contribute? Well, I think uh, uh, in the first instance, we've got to be honest. Just like in the tobacco industry, the, the manufacturers of cigarettes had to be honest about, about the dangers of cigarettes. I think when you're flying, it ought to say... Um, somewhere on your ticket or somewhere on the seat in front of you. By the way, um, every hour you're generating 100 kilograms of CO2, which is more than your body weight, certainly is in my case. So on a 10-hour flight, you're generating a ton of CO2. Where do, where do you find that out? So the first thing is we need honesty in the discussion. We've got to have the, the tools available to us to know what we as individuals can do. And the honesty from the fossil fuel companies will be extremely helpful in that regard. And what about perhaps anything, you know, that we can do a possible solution to the effects of, you know, releases of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases up until this point, you know, because we've already done some damage. We've, we've done we've done a lot of damage already. Uh, there's, there's already um, getting on to a trillion tonnes of CO2 in the atmosphere, which we've put there. We've got to get it out again. Now, planting trees, that's great, but that's not going to be the, the, the answer. Perhaps we can come up with technologies to get the CO2 out. There is a lot of interest in research on exactly that. And we don't yet know what the winners, as it were, are going to be. It's probably going to be a multifaceted solution so that with any luck, we can get our CO2 in the atmosphere down perhaps from 415 where it is now back to 350 or lower in the next couple of decades. But that's what we've got to do. Do we have any grasp on how each of these different sorts of technologies might contribute? So if we've got a kind of basket of technologies reversing some of the effects of climate change as well as mitigating future effects, do we know how each of them might contribute in some way? So if we want to have a reasonable chance of keeping temperatures below 1.5 degrees of warming, and we're already at one degree of warming, 1.5 degrees of warming is, is currently taken as being the level that we want to try and avoid exceeding to, to limit the worst impacts, then we need to dramatically reduce our emissions of um carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases over the next couple of decades. And that means going across the whole of our economy and decarbonising it. So in the UK, we have already significantly reduced the amount of um, emissions coming from the energy sector, mostly because we 
don't use coal um, to any extent really to generate our electricity any longer and also because of efficiency savings. But there's still a long way to go in terms of taking the emissions from the energy sector down to zero. Um, we know what you know. We know that there are renewable technologies that could be rolled out in order to achieve that, but uh, that's not happening at the scale that is required yet. You know, other sectors where which have significant emissions, the transport sector. Um, we know that electrification of large parts of the transport sector is going to be um, an important part of the solution there, um, then connected through to ensuring that that electricity is generated um, from renewable sources. Um, in terms of um, the built environment, our buildings, um, both the operation of our buildings in terms of heating and cooling, for example, but also the construction of our buildings. Steel and cement are heavy emitters of greenhouse gases. And so can we look to be using more natural construction materials, for example, in terms of our um, buildings? Uh, so if we can, we, we can go through sector by sector and look to understand where the emissions are coming from and then what um, technologies we might be able to put in place to try to mitigate, to reduce those um, emissions. But we also need to be looking at the natural world as well. It's not just about engineering solutions. Um, it's not about planting lots of the same species of trees in the wrong places, but it is um, about how can we look to be restoring nature um, in ways that can have a positive impact on biodiversity and a positive impact on climate at the at the same time. So there's a suite of different things that we can use. There's no magic silver bullet solution. We need to be doing all of these. And we do also need, as Hugh has been indicating, to explore ways that we can actually take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and store them store them away so that we also use either natural or engineering-based solutions to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. And Sandra, can I just ask you briefly here, you know, we're talking about different industries and sectors. Uh, we're talking about the built environment and the natural environment. You know, do you ever worry about how to account for the possible contributions that, you know, individual decisions might make when it comes to, you know, decisions around a more sustainable lifestyle? It's interesting. People talk about this. Oh, we need policy solutions. You know, we need engineering solutions. But in the end of the day, we're all humans making decisions. And I think that sometimes it gets lost. You know, politicians are individuals too, choosing to, to enact or support policies based on their individual worldviews and, and biases and concerns. And so, uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, it's important to look at the role um, of individual decision making and how that adds up when you scale it across um, millions and millions of people. And you know, as we've said before, I think the, the idea that we have to take responsibility for the problem is is daunting for people. You know, the idea that you have to acknowledge that you're part of the problem, that I'm part of the problem is is uncomfortable. Um, but I think it's less uncomfortable when we also have clear solutions. And I think that was what Emily was speaking to that, you know, one of the best practices I think that's evolved from the literature is when you say it's a problem, you also have to offer people concrete solutions on how to help mitigate the problem. Otherwise, we're just left with a bad feeling and nobody wants that. You know, there are solutions out there that people can do uh, locally and people need knowledge about how to actually improve their decision making. Because I think that's, you know, a, a big part of it is that people don't know what decisions that they can take locally 
that are effective. And that's true for any context. Think about COVID-19. You know, people need information about local local infection rates in order to make informed decisions. Um, so not not having the right information to make decisions in your area, I think, is is a big problem. Okay, so they keep telling us that giving people the right information or maybe the most compelling information will encourage people to take action. Don't forget about misinformation. Yes, uh, Sander is the one to ask about misinformation. Apparently, misinformation about climate change has really fueled climate change denial. The thinking being, if you can get people to doubt the science, then this will impact their behaviour and they'll end up taking climate change less seriously. But he has a plan here. Oh yes, they don't call him Plander van der Linden for nothing. <laughs> I'll, I'll just leave now. So... Sander and his research group have been trying to work out how to help people build immunity to misinformation. The idea is to let them have a go themselves at creating and spreading some misinformation in a controlled environment, not like on Facebook. They found that this helps people spot misinformation next time they come across it, as they sort of know how it, it works behind the scenes. Okay, so Sander has the misinformation angle. Thank you, Sander. Um, what else is then in the way of people doing something about climate change? Well, people can get bogged down thinking about what difference they, as an individual, could possibly do. Yes, Sander pointed out that it's particularly tough for humans to understand that we're all part of the problem. Psychologically, it's not a comfortable thought. But it gets less uncomfortable if we know there are some solutions. Exactly. So this goes back to Hugh's comment about empowering people to know which behaviours they can change to have the greatest impact. People might also be thinking that scientists and engineers will fix this, find a solution or a couple of solutions to fix the current damage so that no one has to change their lifestyles. I'm going to put this in the extreme optimism category from the last episode. I mean, I love science, but we can't just rely on science to solve all of our problems. Exactly. So although technology might play a role and we can build back nature, it's not as if there's a silver bullet. Again, I keep saying if there were, it would be a short podcast series. So who is responsible then? Who do we look at to actually do something? Well, the conversation came back around to people needing to be better informed. That way, they know the impact of their actions and can make better, more sustainable decisions. Also, fossil fuel companies need to be honest about the carbon footprint of their products and activities. So what do you think of Hugh's suggestion of including the carbon cost of a plane ticket? Would that make you think twice about your next trip if we're ever allowed to travel again? Um, maybe. Although, to be honest, probably not as much as a ticket just being super expensive. So Emily also said that we'd need to decarbonise our entire economy. Greener technologies are out there, but they're not being taken up at the scale needed. Well, not yet, at least. There's more about the specific solutions Emily and her team have suggested in Cambridge Zero's Green Recovery Plan, a blueprint for a green future. You can find a link to the plan in the episode description. And then finally, we started talking about politicians, those folk who make decisions for lots and lots of other people. Yes, Sander reminded us that politicians are individuals too. They have their own biases and worries, so we have to consider individual decision-making and how that adds up when you scale it up across millions of people. Are you able to offer any sort of insight into the psychology of decision-makers who are making decisions at this global level? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's kind of a slightly different area. I, I would probably say that sociologists or people who study societal level change don't necessarily agree with me in the sense that, you know, they would probably bring up that there's there's institutions with their own structures and processes that that mediate um, the, the influence that individuals have. Because, you know, within our professional settings, we do operate within institutions that constrain 
or empower our, our ability to make decisions. And of course, that's an important factor. Um, but from a psychology point of view, what's interesting is that that does bring unique challenges with it. So for example, um, corporations and businesses are in a huge position to make a difference, but because they have other motives and other obligations to shareholders and other incentives, they're not necessarily uh, inclined to, to make the best decisions for the environment. Um, and individuals operate within that structure. So even if you're a manager um, who, who loves sustainability and wants to mitigate climate change, um, you might not be able to do so because the institution uh, within which you operate um, is uh, constraining you. And to, to not bring a too controversial example, let's say we're all at the University of Cambridge and we, and we support divestment. Um, that's not really up to us as individuals. Uh, there are committees and there are structures and there's discussions and it's a, it's a long process. Um, and that's where kind of group psychology comes into uh, play as well. So we know that when people are in groups, they make different decisions than when they would make the same individual as an individual. And one, one typical example is the risky shift. So people tend to be more inclined to accept risk on behalf of other people when they make a decision in a group versus when they would make it on their own. One thing, perhaps I can add there, one thing that I think has been a really major change over the last 18 months or so, I mean, this is particularly true in the UK, but I think it's it's very much the case internationally now as well, is there is starting to be a real shift in the business community in terms of um, the broader business community's approach to climate change in particular. And part of that, I think, has come about as um, a consequence of a much greater understanding of climate-related risks um, to businesses. Um, and, um, and part of it, I think, is, is this difference between the way in which you assess problems, if you're in a professional context, to one that perhaps the sort of thought processes that you use in, in more everyday um, situations. And I, I think that many, many businesses are genuinely taking this very seriously, taking their responsibility very seriously, and are um, looking to ha to see how they can um, co contribute to a rapid shift to a zero carbon economy. You know, we've mentioned, you know, the risks associated with climate change. Um, I wonder if you want to say anything about some of the potentially more risky ways in which we could tackle it. So is there anything technological that we're not doing at the moment, which is possible, even if risky? Well, first, I think we have to really uh, accept the risk of, of not doing anything. We know that if we carry on with, as it's so-called, business as usual, then perhaps we're up for three, four, five degrees warming by the end of the century, which would be a disaster. So we've got to do something. Clearly, we've got to stop burning fossil fuels. Uh, perhaps we've got to think about removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Um, if, but those two measures, which are essential, turn out not to be enough, then what else might we do? One thing we could do is uh, to emulate volcanic eruptions, because we know that in the past, Mount Pinatubo, for example, in 1991, it erupted in the Philippines and caused a global cooling of about you know, nearly a degree over nearly a year. Imagine if we could artificially create active ingredients of a volcanic eruption. Turns out that that's sulfur dioxide sprayed high into the atmosphere. Could we do that? Now, it sounds pretty scary, particularly when you realize that the sulfur dioxide turns into sulfuric acid um, and no one likes uh, acid rain and all that. But would we 
be willing, and this is a kind of a question for Sander, as a, as a, as a people, as a global population, are we willing to meddle with the climate in that kind of way? I mean, we could argue that we already have done with CO2, but we did that without knowing. Would we, with full knowledge of what we're doing, meddle with the climate by, say, spraying sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere? I think it depends on the situation. I think in extreme enough situations, people are willing to support extreme proposals. And you see that, in, especially in politics, that, that when people feel uh, fearful and uncertain, uh, they're much more willing to accept extreme proposals. So, it, you know, if, if we are in a futuristic scenario where things are increasingly bad, um, I think that people would be more willing to accept these type of risks than otherwise. But speaking well, of the on, moment, Hold on, Sander. We're in that futuristic scenario right now. But we can't wait 10 or 20 years before we address this issue. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. But but what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that people don't experience it as such. You know, for example, when when Emily says one degree warming, I think what people think about is like one degree in the bathtub, one degree out 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 and about. That's yeah, you know, no, they think about, they like think about they think about one degree. They think about one degree warmer. That would make our summer holidays really lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So I think that's the that's the issue. Also, from the communication and the psychology side, how could you how can you best present the evidence in a way that also leads people to the best understanding of what that means for their personal lives? And I think that's a really difficult challenge. We don't want to scare people. We don't want to exaggerate things, but we also want to be as accurate as uh, as possible, so that people can then make informed decisions about the risks they want to take for potential solutions. Because that's kind of what I was getting at, Hugh. That if people understand the severity of the risk, they might think differently about some of these technological solutions than than otherwise. There is one other thing that we, you know, absolutely ought to recognise as well, um, which is that, you know, as I was already describing, um, the risk of um, certain types of extreme weather is already substantially increased as a consequence of the climate change we've already seen. Um, we are, you know, we we are on course to um, see significantly more climate change over the coming decades. Um, you know, however fast we try to reduce our um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, we're not going to be able to avoid seeing further climate change um, above and beyond what we've already seen. And there are many communities around the world that are already significantly suffering. So another key component of our response has to be um, a building greater resilience to existing and future climate change um, uh, and that's that's especially for vulnerable communities, developing countries in particular around around the world, low lying countries that are already exposed to significant risk from flooding, for example. So I think that that we you know we can't ignore as well the importance of adapting to um, current and future climate change. Well, that's something we haven't really touched on in terms of. Um which has a huge human dimension, the, the idea of uh, uh, fairness and justice and, and climate uh, inequality. I mean, there are certain parts of the world that are hugely impacted by, by climate change um, that are bearing uh, the brunt of, of the uh, negative impacts while we're continuing to be part of the problem. So I think there, there are huge inequalities that are difficult for people to, to recognize and wrap their heads around. Is there anything going on at the moment which is sort of a reason to be optimistic? You know, can we can we be hopeful 
Um, looking at where we are at the moment, that we're heading in some ways in the right direction. Um, well, I think there is. I, I, you know, I mean, obviously, I can say point to plenty of things which are not so optimistic, like the state of the West Antarctic ice sheets, for example. But in terms of things that are optimistic, I would I would point to the fact that around the world there is an increase in recognition of climate-related risks. We've seen, particularly in the last couple of years, um, in many countries of, world, of the world, a rising up of young people saying, um, making their voices heard. I think that's been a very um, positive um, in terms of a global recognition of the challenges. I've already mentioned that many parts of the business communities are now starting to recognise um, not only the risks associated with the climate change, but their role in responding to that. Um, we are, you know, in terms of the technological developments, or as I, as I was stressing as well, the importance of our understanding of how we can deploy nature to help be part of the solutions. Um, there's hugely exciting work going on across many different aspects of technological development and of um, looking at uh, nature restoration projects. So that's exciting. The other aspect that we can't ignore is um, the global international response. And the next 12 months are incredibly important part of that. Um, in November, this time next year, we're going to be hosting in the UK the next big global international climate conference. It's been delayed a year as a consequence of the pandemic. And so looking both at how countries might come together and increase each of their ambitions in terms of emissions reductions together with not just at that uh, uh, global scale, but looking down on the ground, some of the things that we've been talking about in this conversation, translating those numbers down into actual action at a local level, on the ground, sector by sector, um, and ensuring that we don't just have big global targets, but we actually have a, a proper plan as to how to tackle climate change that can be enacted here and now today is also going to be critically important. Right, so we started off talking about an honestly pretty scary picture of where we're heading if we don't do something about climate change. And then we talked about what individuals can do and how we can get them to take action. And now we've just talked about how corporations and businesses are in exactly the right position to make a difference but that there are lots of complicating factors that prevent them from taking action. And we can't forget that individuals operate within the structures of their institutions. But the good news that Emily pointed out is that there's the start of a real shift in businesses' approach to climate change, probably because they have a better understanding of the risks that climate change poses to businesses. Apparently, many companies are now taking their responsibility seriously and are doing their bit to work towards a zero carbon economy. There are also some technological solutions that Hugh mentioned. He said that they're risky, but still possible. Things like emulating volcanic eruptions to artificially cool the atmosphere. But are we ready to meddle with the climate in that kind of way? Maybe. I'm a big meddler personally, but up until now, no one has offered me the climate to meddle with. Um, maybe decision makers will feel more like meddling as things get more extreme. So, what are the reasons to be optimistic? Well, Emily mentioned that we're approaching some positive tipping points. Around the world, there's an increased recognition of the threat of climate change. Uh, young people 
are increasingly making their voices heard and businesses are starting to recognise the risk of climate change and taking responsibility for responding to those risks. And lots of work is going on to develop technological and natural solutions too. And there's the upcoming COP26 meeting in Glasgow next November, which will build on the Paris Agreement to hopefully create a plan which includes local responses and not just big global commitments. I mean, Nick, what do you think of um, some of these possible solutions that Hugh was presenting? The idea of uh, recreating a volcano explosion, like it sounds great, but I just think back to, what was it, 2010 in Iceland and the uh, disruption to air travel and it just basically halted everything. So it's, you know, whenever we do something where we're sort of intervening in nature, I can't think of any good success stories, but... No, I'm not an expert, so what do I know? I mean, I, su- I suspect that Hugh would say it's not quite the same as just, uh, you know, unleashing another Krakatoa or, or something like this, that we might actually see the same effect in terms of um, the, uh, the effect on the climate, but maybe without all of the all of the disruption. I mean, I don't think we literally need to blow up a mountain in order to do this. Just let off some gas. Um, or some particles maybe. (laughs) Right, so what will we be talking about next time? Well, in the next episode, we're talking to Diane Coyle. Hello, my name is Diane Coyle. Ruchi Chowdhury. Hi, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Ruchi Chowdhury. And Laura Diaz-Anadon. Hi everyone, my name is Laura Diaz-Anadon. About how we might build a future that is not like the past. I don't know about you, but in some ways I might quite like a future which looks a little bit like the past, a bit more than it does at the moment at least. But I guess I'm not really thinking about climate change here. So anyway, I'm looking forward to it, both to this bright future and to the chat. In the meantime, I'm going to go and work out what my carbon footprint is. You go ahead and get that started. But first, don't forget to please like and subscribe Mind Over Chatter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And, and, and please leave us a review. A good one, please. Yes, we like good ones. And don't forget to tell your family and friends, both your real friends and those people you pretend to be friends with, just to be polite. Just shout about it to everyone. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Emily Schuckperer, Hugh Hunt and Sander van der Linden. And as ever, to Naomi Clements Broad for production and general lurking. Music was by Carlo Ladd and artwork by Alex Sadler. <laughs>